Today's very special crossover episode of The Ringer MLB Show and The Rewatchables is brought to you by The Ringer Podcast Network. This week, we have several sports rewatchables running across the network. On Monday, Bill Simmons had Joe House and Chris Ryan on the Bill Simmons pod to take a look back at Game 6 of the 2016 NBA Western Conference Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Oklahoma City Thunder. And on Wednesday on the Ringer NFL Show feed, Robert Mays and Kevin Clark broke down the 2013 NFC Championship game between the Seahawks and 49ers. And on Friday, tune in to the Mass Man Show to hear David Shoemaker and special guest Zach Linder unpack WrestleMania 30. So be sure to check those shows out wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to some combination of the Rewatchables and the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer and I'm joined by uh, the Ringer's multimedia star, senior editorial muckety muck, Mallory Rubin. Mal. Wow. What an intro. Hello. Well, (laughs) you wear many hats. And so I, I felt it appropriate to pay due tribute to that. Michael, uh, I'm wearing a baseball cap today because we're here to talk about baseball, America's pastime. This is a special edition of uh, the Rewatchables and the Ringer MLB show. The thing we're rewatching is Game 6 of the 2011 World Series between the Texas Rangers and St. Louis Cardinals. I guess one place to start is, is this the, the best World Series game of the 21st century? This is certainly up there. It's certainly up there. I personally have a little bit of recency bias with this stuff. So when I think about the best World Series games in recent memory, I kind of can't help but think about games 2 and 5 in the Dodgers-Astros series a couple years ago. But that's probably just because as I age and rely increasingly on coffee and you to remind me of things that happened in this sport, uh, that's freshest for me. But this is certainly up there. I mean, in part because the game itself was such a classic and in part because legends sprung from it. David Freeze, obviously, chief among them. And also because there's... I think there's always a little bit more lore around a game when you really have clear consequences for the franchises after the fact. You know, the Rangers kind of didn't come back from this. I mean, they did in the sense that they contended regularly for a couple more years, but they didn't win one. And they had two chances in a row and they didn't do it either time. Because obviously, in addition to winning this game, which the Cardinals did in the bottom of the 11th, they then won Game 7 and they won this World Series. So I, I think that's that's part of it, too. It's not just that the Cardinals staged this astonishing series of events and this walk-off home run, but they then they claim the title. Yeah, and these are—you I mean, alluded to the Rangers bringing that that team together that went to won back-to-back pennants, and the Cardinals, like, this was also the last ride uh, for Albert Pujols. You know, he we knew he hadn't signed mm-hmm. the— Resigned with with the Cardinals, and at that point, he had been one of the best players in baseball for a decade. You know, he and Tony Larusa were synonymous with this team, and this this series was the last appearance for both of them in a Cardinals uniform. Right. Um, it, so we were just so familiar with the the cast of character characters to to say nothing of of this Cardinals team going all the way back to 2004 uh, when they made the World Series and lost to uh, the Red Sox. It, it's also uh, unfortunately, I think necessary to talk about the manner in which the Cardinals even made the playoffs because they uh, they went had to go eighteen and eight in September right. to catch the Braves. They were part of that amazing four way uh, game one sixty two, as we call it. Uh, now at the very end of the twenty eleven season, uh, we had the Cardinals and the Braves fighting for the last National League wild card spot or 
it was the only National League wild card spot back then. That's <laughs> right. how long ago this was. And the uh, the Red Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays in the uh, in the hunt for uh, it was the AL East Division title, uh, and it went all the way down to the wire. And the Rays had that great comeback, and the the Red Sox blew the lead in Baltimore, and the Braves blew a lead against yeah, the Phillies did. on the last day of the season to let the Cardinals in, and the Cardinals wound up uh, beating the 102 win Phillies in a five game NLDS and went all the way to the World Series. And like this team was all but out of the playoff race in mid-September and they come back to win the entire thing. Yeah, they were 10.5 games out of the playoffs in late August. And as you said, somehow went from there to not only making the playoffs in the last game of the season, but to winning the championship for their 11th title in franchise history. And there was that idea of this team is used to pressing. This team has had its back, its collective back up against the wall for a month and a half. Like that was there palpably in every second and every pitch of the game. And whether or not as a sports fan, you buy into that kind of thing and buy into the idea of momentum and these intangible narratives, it in hindsight, at least, feels like a very real thing. And that is certainly something that lends, again, this this aura of kind of mysticism to this game. And the flip side of that is that the stakes were just as high for the Rangers, who, of course, were looking for their first (laughs) World Series in franchise history and were one strike away, one strike away from getting it more than once in this game and didn't. They had a club record 96 wins in the season, won the West, obviously, beat the Rays in the Division Series, the Tigers, and the Championship Series. They had lost the 2010 World Series, as we alluded to a moment ago. They lost that to the Giants. Obviously, we were at the beginning of even-year magic here. And so you had, on the one hand, what looked like this real juggernaut in the Rangers that was finally due. It felt like it finally had to happen. And then you had this team in the Cardinals who it basically felt like shouldn't be there if not for the rally squirrel. <laughs> and yet, somehow this happened. It's incredible. I repressed the rally squirrel. <laughs> I will be bringing up the rally squirrel multiple times throughout the course of this podcast. Here's my promise to you, Michael. Every time you mention the Jake Arietta trade, I will torment you with a mention of either the rally squirrel or how bad your one true love, Lance Lynn, was in this baseball game. I mean, Lance Lynn plays a, a pivotal role in this game. And I think that, you know, yes, if does. nothing else, th- that's what, <laughs> what separates this game from the other ones we considered is the chance to discuss the best pitcher of the 21st century, Lance Lynn, uh, who oh, uh, young and, and hirsute and, and Zoftig uh, appears out of the bullpen in this game. Um, so we're going to talk about that. But before we um, talk about the, the game, those two you mentioned a couple things. One, the big comeback, but mm-hmm. two, the uh, the Rangers being down to the last strike. You know, not to be all please like my sport, but I think that those two things. There's such a grand tradition of um, of pennant races that I feel like don't, don't exist in the regular season in football, basketball, or hockey. Just because more teams make the playoffs, there's not that. You know, you don't get the the 51 Giants or the the 95 Angels collapsing or or you know, these Cardinals or or uh, or the Rays in the other league, you know, you, you don't get that in other sports, and that those narratives don't don't push off into the the postseason the way they do. And the other thing is, it's tough to imagine getting as close as the Rangers got to winning a to winning a championship and then just having it all unravel. In terms of collapses, it's up there, uh, you know, with um, the Bill Buckner uh, Mookie Wilson play in '86 in, in terms of getting that close and just having it all come completely apart. Yeah, I mean, they had this game won so many different times, but not even just this game. You know, they had they had pretty much dominated the series outside 
of Game 3, the Rangers entering this game, entering Game 6, had held the Cardinals to six total runs in four games other than that Game 3 offensive explosion. And the bullpen... It just felt like every move, some of which were logically indefensible, which we'll we'll get to later, and some of which felt right, just didn't work out throughout the entire course of the game. You know, the game also has these kind of pockets, these like micro moments, and obviously we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the most rewatchable sequences. But you had series of the game that were really messy and sloppy, a lot of bad defense, and then you had series of the game later that felt like constant surges of heroism where everybody kept doing something incredible. And I think emblematic of that, here, here's a brief little snippet of a conversation from the broadcast. This has got to be the oddest game of the postseason so far this year. No question about it. Routine plays are not routine. That was in the fifth inning. The fifth inning yeah. before the lead swaps in the ninth and the tenth, before the walk-off homer in the eleventh, obviously. The first words after the walk-off celebration, obviously, we go to just, you know, sound from the field, the cheers, the screams, the celebration at the plate. You know, you can, if you listen closely enough, you can trick yourself into thinking you can hear David, David Freeze's jersey shredding. And the first words we hear after the mics come back on is, how did this happen? Which sums it up pretty well. Even if you won't maybe want the announcers to be the ones telling you how it happened, there was this sense of disbelief about what we had just witnessed. And Joe Buck, summed up the night by saying, what a night for number 23, meaning freeze, and for baseball. And it does still feel like one of those games. What a game for baseball, where if you love the sport, it had kind of everything. And a lot of it from an actual sabermetrics perspective and the way we understand how the game has changed and how it should be played today is like horrifying to return to. But (laughs) (laughs) there's still this element of the ball does what it wants to do. The umpire's going to make a call. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Maybe a guy who's been hurt all year will finally hit a home run. Maybe a hero will come through, maybe he won't. It's the thing that we love about baseball boiled down into a tight, cool, crisp four hours and 33 minutes. Is that is that how long this ended up being? <laughs> yeah. I, I which, know the one thing I love about Major League Baseball is they put a lot of their old games on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so you can watch this and, and go find it and like... All of us, both of us and uh, and Bobby, our producer, like I think all of us went to YouTube. We're like, OK, I'm going to knock this out tonight. And then saw the video was five and a half hours long. Quite long. And yeah, I found myself simultaneously like daunted by the prospect of returning to a baseball game that long. And then weirdly at the end of it, in part because it's so enjoyable, but also in part because I was judging it against the recent standard of these, you know, seemingly endless extra inning games that we've had in the last couple postseasons where I was like, that felt sort of brisk, real brisk mm-hmm. four and a half hours. Last postseason, we had a game that felt like it lasted a day and a half. It went into another day. Are you talking about game three of the World Series or are you talking about that wild card game between the Cubs and the Rockies? I'm talking at about least, your like, boy, Nathan Eovaldi, out well, there I mean, on the mound. That was day after day, hour after hour. It was literally the longest game in the World Series. Uh, exactly. I, so... I was writing about that and my wife had to get up at like five o'clock to catch an early flight. And uh, she said she woke up and I wasn't in bed and had no idea what had happened and came out in the living room. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm still writing. The game just ended. Um, yeah, I know. So all we that. Get you know how I know all that? Because I was editing that piece and you were telling yes. me all of that as it was happening in real time. What a well, joy to I share all the of this with you. <laughs> 
I live in the future, so it was much later where I am. That's true. That's a great point. Um, this game actually felt a lot like game two of mm-hmm. the 2017 World Series, where yeah, I had to break this up into two days. So I watched like the first four or five innings uh, on one night and then came back to it the next day. And the first few innings, like it just feels like one of those long baseball games. And then once you get into like the seventh, eighth, ninth innings, the Cardinals scored every inning from the eighth to the 11th. And it's just so much action, one knockout blow after another that uh, it, when you look back at it, you don't realize how long it's taken. And so, you know, that's I think that's playoff baseball at its best, where you realize where you're already sort of slap happy from having devoted so much time to the game. And then it really kicks up in the later innings. Yeah. One thing I love about this baseball game in particular, but baseball games like this and playoff games like this in general is there are sort of two truths that emerge after. There's the truth of how special it felt to watch it, and then there's the truth of what it actually was, right? And you can find that pretty easily when you're returning to game columns and postseason snippets. So you have like the lore building up, you know, Jason Stark saying, we could easily argue it was the greatest World Series game ever played. And then you have Lance Berkman, for example, saying, really and truly, this was an ugly game for about six Mm -hmm. or seven innings, but then it got beautiful right at the end. And like, those two assessments are not mutually exclusive. They're both real and valid, and either one can kind of feel true to you at a given moment based on where you in and where you are in your rewatch. And there's a funny quote from Skip Schumacher for the purposes of this exercise, Rewatchables, where he says, I don't know how to describe this game. I almost want to tell people, you have to see the video. And now we can tell people, you have to listen to this podcast. It's perfect. Well, that feels like a great segue to get into our categories. You're are, you're really good at this. That's fantastic work by you. Thanks, All buddy. right. So just like a, a traditional movie episode of The Rewatchables, we're going to uh, use a rubric of, of categories to discuss the game in, in depth. So we're going to kick it off with what's age the best? Um, Wait, you forgot I'll, the first category. Oh, the most rewatchable sequence. Sorry. <laughs> So you made fun of me for for formatting my notes. That's why I missed the... Yeah. I didn't have a line break between categories, so I skipped most rewatchable sequence. (laughs) All right. um, I feel like it kind of has to be the the triple over Nelson Cruz's head, that entire that entire half inning. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm open to other suggestions. I have three nominations for this. Okay. I have what I will call error ball. This might technically be too wide of a swath of time to count as a rewatchable sequence, but um, you know what? We're trying something new here today. We can make up the rules. So this would be the top of the fourth through the bottom of the sixth. In other words, when all five errors mm-hmm. were committed in this game. So that's two in the top of the fourth. The cruise bloop that dropped between Holiday and Fercal and a run scored then on Napoli's single. Then there's Salas throwing into center field while he was fielding a bunt. Then in the bottom of the fourth, there's a Young throwing error, your boy, your guy, Mike Young. In the top of the fifth, there's the infamous freeze-dropped pop-up. So there were errors in both of Salas' innings, very rough. And that freeze play is, of course, notable on its own because it, it was just such a defensive debacle, but it's particularly famous now because of how it feeds into the narrative of his game-winning, game-tying and then game-winning hits. He cites it in the post-game comments, which I'm sure we'll discuss at length later. And it was really a totally routine play, you know, lead-off batter, 
the fifth inning, game's tied 3-3, Hamilton's up, he swings at the first pitch as usual, right, as people would expect. And Buck is right there before the ball gets to freeze saying, and a pop-up, which has been anything but routine tonight, kind of calling it, sensing that something was happening good, defensively good in this game. Yeah. And then after freeze drops him, McCarver just comes in with the classic, what's going on? Which killed me rewatching it. Totally I was appropriate, so by the way. Because, <laughs> like, I, I want to say just because we're, we're being a little hyperbolic in general about that game, that might actually be the easiest pop-up I've ever seen a major league infielder drop. It's an astonishing drop. And it got, it's not even like he lost it in the lights. It got all the way into his glove yeah. and just kicked out. I have no idea how he dropped that. It's amazing. And then Hamilton scored on the next batter to bring the lead to 4-3 at that point. And then the, the fifth error was in the bottom of the sixth. Another error on Michael Young on the holiday chop. So that series of events where we had three half innings in a row open with an error is wildly weird and fun to return to. So that's my nominee number one. Then my second nominee would be the lead changes late in the game, the ninth and 10th innings. You have the Rangers entering the bottom of the ninth. They're up 7-5. Freezes two-out, two-strike triple to tie the game. Then in the top of the 10th inning, Josh Hamilton hitting a two-run home run to retake the lead. And then in the bottom of the 10th, after one run had scored on a ground out, Lance Berkman coming up and tying it again on a two-out, two-strike single. You had Feliz, lockdown closer at the time, allowing the triple to freeze, Feldman allowing the hit to Berkman, and then Lowe allowing Freeze's walk-off in the 11th, though I would isolate that as a separate event. Again, Feliz and Feldman both one strike away from winning the World Series. Really don't think we can say that enough on this podcast. No team had ever come from behind twice in the ninth inning and later to tie a World Series game or take the lead. And during this phase of the game, they announced that St. Louis was the first team in World Series history to score in the 8th, ninth, and 10th inning. And then obviously, as you noted earlier, that streak then extends to the 11th with the walk-off, which of course is my third nominee, Freeze's walk-off. Our guy has 102 career home runs total in 10-year career. He's not exactly Babe Ruth, like no shade to David Freeze. He just is not. He had hit 10 home runs in 97 games uh, during the regular season in 2011, but he had four already in the postseason entering this game. You combine what happens in this moment with the walk-off, which would be enough on its own, but you combine it with with what came before with the game-tying triple in the ninth to force extras and, of course, the pop-up, the defensive error that we just mentioned. Mark Lowe was in because the Rangers had torn through their bullpen. Washington had pinch hit for Feldman in the top of the 11th. Lowe had only been in one game all postseason. And right as this at-bat is starting, this freeze at-bat, McCarver says, this is already a classic. And then we get the home run from the hometown kid. It's perfect. This might feel a little greedy, but like a, a solo home run to to lead off an inning almost didn't feel sufficiently weird enough. It's true. For, for That's this a great game. point. And maybe maybe it's a mercy killing. Maybe this game just takes <laughs> like in, instead of having that Bill Buckner moment, it ended on on something like very routine and positive. But uh, it it represented a tonal shift, I, I think. Yeah, you're right. A lot of the key moments in this game involve multiple people doing a thing or failing to do a thing. So Mm -hmm. a lot of errors on defense or running through so many batters and so many pitchers in these innings where we're trading leads. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I I like that. This was not a game for just one man. This was a game for five errors. So, okay, which of those three do you pick then? Based on that, you're not picking the walk-off. 
No, uh, give me the Feliz blowing the save. Hmm. That that whole sequence, like, yeah. My big takeaway watching this game is how the hell did Texas lose this? Yeah, I mean they led most of the way. They they really as much as as we're going to talk about Ron Washington's bullpen management. He handed the game off to just one lights out reliever after another. And then uh, my I had my notes, my oh, this is how the Rangers lose this game moment came around ball two to Alan Craig Uh in the ninth after Fleas walked Berkman because like you give the the ball to your all world closer with a two run lead and he starts walking people. And it would at that point, like, what are you going to do? Ron Washington uh, is, you know, he can't just conjure you know, prime Mariano Rivera to to close that out. You know, he had a, a perfectly good closer and a couple, you know, Darren Oliver was a good reliever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Feldman was a good re- reliever. Alexi Agondo at that point in his career. And all of them sort of fell apart. Tough game for Agondo. Yeah. Very tough. Ooh, I'm torn on whether I want to pick the late lead changes in the ninth and 10th or error ball, just for the sake of... Uh, Shaking it up a little bit. I'll, I'll go with the error ball sequence. That is so fun and weird to rewatch. It sort of feels like the game is going to be a cursed game, and then the way mm-hmm. it shifts into this series of heroics is, it's really fun to revisit that swath of the game where it just felt like everything was going wrong for everybody. I'll pick that. There is a weird like line of demarcation where the regular where the first nine innings are, you know, even the the. Uh, Cardinals comeback is still it's mostly about the Rangers blowing it you get that the Hamilton home run in the 10th which would have been an all-time World Series moment if the Rangers had hung on and then the freeze home run so maybe it it shifted from tragic comedy to to heroic (laughs) epic as we went into the right or went into extra innings I love it all right now what's age the best I have five options okay let's hear them one is the 2010-2011 Rangers. I love this team. Mm-hmm. They it, this was the beginning of the the uh, Rangers pan infield bromance with Michael Young and Elvis Andrews and um, and Adrian Beltre. Uh, those guys were incredibly fun. They had a great bullpen. Not that you know it from um, from watching this game. This was the beginning of Nelson Cruz. Uh, <laughs> this was Josh Hamilton at or near the peak of his powers. And I think he's he's such a such a strange historical figure that. It's easy to forget that he, I don't know, for my money, he might be the most talented baseball player I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and this was him Other than know, Lance really Lynn. at peak Josh Hamilton. So uh, that's one option. Number two, Lance Berkman's beard. Uh, mm. The uh, announcers made reference to him being a gray beard. I think it looked great. Three, seeing prime <laughs> Albert Pujols. Pujols has been, yeah. I mean, he's been a contract for pretty much the entire time I've been covering baseball. And it's easy to forget that he was just such a, a gigantic, revered, feared figure uh, in baseball. And this was one of the last moments before the decline started. Uh, number four, no replay. Wow. Um, Matt Holiday's picked off third base in the sixth inning. And there's no replay, no, like, did his hand come off the, the base for a fraction of a second? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, going over the cameras for four minutes to figure out if, you know, uh, if there's a micron of space between his his hand and the bag, I miss that immensely. Oh, spoiler alert. I have that in what age the worst. I'm oh, excited really? to okay. debate this. This podcast is going to be four hours long if we stop to to chase every uh, <laughs> every white rabbit that comes across the screen. And so the last one is something you've been alluding to. It seems like every position player had an arc. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Nelson Cruz had the home run and then he, he had the fielding mistake and then Freeze had the fielding mistake and he had the home run. And so it, it just felt it felt very literary, this game, yeah. the way it unfolded over the course of time. And I think that's one of the reasons that it stands out as one of the great World Series games. Positively Shakespearean. I love it. Yes. Uh, I, I like I like a lot of those. My nominees won the rally squirrel getting an entire pregame spot. <laughs> I had initially intended to zip through a lot of this pregame stuff when I was watching the YouTube clip. I did. Because I, I, I saw five hours of like... Yeah, I right. As you noted, uh, an intimidating runtime on this on this YouTube video. And then I saw the squirrel, Michael. And let me tell you, I got sucked right back into that narrative. Boy, did I. Rally Squirrel, in case anyone doesn't remember, three appearances in the Cardinals NLDS series win over your Philadelphia Phillies. He was out in the outfield in Game 3. He was at home plate in Game 4, and then he appeared during warm-ups in Game 5. Led Charlie Manuel to actually say that he'd shoot him if he could, which is horrifying. Rally Squirrel had a Twitter account. He had a theme song. He had merch. He got a Topps baseball card. Uh, spawned a lot of debate about how he stacked up, you know, the tail of the tape between Rally Squirrel and Rally Monkey. I really had fun rewatching the Rally Squirrel spot and thinking about all of this again. I think it was one of the first things that I slacked you and our producer Bobby about as we were all rewatching yeah. this together. I just got really hyped. Uh, relatedly, Cardinals fan John Hamm narrating the opening segment of the broadcast. This has aged well. People still love John Hamm. John Hamm is still associated with St. Louis sports. Found that delightful. I also, like you, had Albert Pujols in his prime, just getting to see this. You know, entering the game, he had three home runs in Game 3, but was hitless in the rest of the World Series heading into this contest. Yet, unsurprisingly, you could still feel how afraid the Rangers were of him every second of this game. It was visceral. And then he was, of course, intentionally walked in the 10th by Feldman. We had a lot of great opportunities throughout the game every time Pujols was either up or about to be up where there's just this desire, almost like magnetic on the, the part of the broadcasters to talk about the legend. There was this really funny moment where Buck said, guess who's on deck? And McCarver said, who? And it's like not clear if he's playing into the bit or actually doesn't know. And Buck says, Albert Pujols. And then McCarver just laughs. I found that very weird and charming. Some discussion about how he was a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame already at this point in his career, you know, 11 years in. As you noted, hadn't become just a contract yet, hadn't left via free agency for the Angels. And there was this really wonderful story about Larusa signing a photo that Pujols had given him after his first year, a picture of Pujols and Larusa. And they told the story about how Larusa, you know, and who knows if this is real or apocryphal, but I, I found it quite winning nonetheless you know, hell, let me think about it, and kind of held it overnight. And then when he gave it back to him, he had signed it and said already at that point that Pujols was the best player he'd ever managed. So especially now, revisiting this after years and years and years of precipitous decline for Pujols, it was pretty thrilling to return to this moment when he was an absolute titan in the sport. And similarly, Josh Hamilton as a, a god of the game. You know, the extra inning homer, even while injured, he'd been battling a groin injury for much of the year. Obviously, he was coming off the, the MVP season the year prior and just hadn't really been himself. 
And then you just had these moments, these bursts where you had to remember how unstoppable he was as a baseball force when he could be. And then he literally talked about God calling the home run after mm-hmm. the game, which really uh, boosts the legend. So those were those were my nominees for for what age the best. I, I I'd probably go with peak pools. That was pretty cool. I was gonna I was gonna pick the 2010-11 Rangers, and I think you talked me into peak pools. Wonderful. Somewhat ironically, because Pujols himself could go in what's age the worst if I believe uh, if Bobby we so has him in in what's age the worst on the, Yeah, well Bobby gets a little snotty. I mean about this we stuff. could take that quite literally. Albert Pujols yeah. has, has aged poorly. That's that's true. Seeing prime Albert Pujols, the the reverence for for prime Albert Pujols is age the best. And I think um, I, we should just say, by the way, that the fact that he's not really one of the heroes of the game, you know, Hamilton had the home run, Freeze has the triple and the walk-off homer. Obviously, a million other players did things of note. And not that Pujols didn't, but he wasn't necessarily I mean, the headliner of this game. And yet, yeah, yeah, and yet you feel that way, which I think is actually kind of the magic of it. He wasn't the one delivering the game-winning plays, and yet you still couldn't stop thinking about the impact. The most interesting thing is they kept talking about, oh, should they walk him? And the guy hitting behind him is Lance Berkman, who I think should have had some Hall of Fame consideration, Uh, certainly a Hall of Very Good player. And he went three three for five and scored four runs and is in the middle of every important offensive thing the Cardinals did. Freeze had, I'm just looking at the the win probability mm-hmm. um, on baseball reference, and Freeze had the uh, hit in the, over Cruz's head in the ninth, he had the walk-off home run in the 11th, and then, and his win probability added was uh, .964 for this game. Berkman's was .828, and so, you know, he's, you could make an argument that he's just important for this game as, uh, as Freeze, and there's like no consideration that this is a hitter you might want to fear when <laughs> right. Pujols is in the lineup in front of him. So Incredible. yeah, I think, you know, if anything, maybe because of Pujols' decline, we underrate how good he was at his peak. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. All right, let's go to what's age the worst. Uh, I've got Fox throwing up the flames graphic when Jason Mott hit 95 <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. Josh Tomlin throws 95. He doesn't literally throw 95, but he probably could if he wanted to. Tim Tim McCarver's khaki overcoat. Mm. Um, he looks like he's Kevin Costner and JFK. Um, <laughs> the lineup construction is real bad. These are these yeah. are two of the last successful managers that we really made fun of from a tactical perspective. Uh, just as an example, the two, number two hitters were Elvis Andrews and Skip Schumacher. Um, <laughs> just not great. Brutal. Uh, and... The pitching, like baseball, this is sort of hand in glove with uh, with Mott and the the Fox Flames graphic. But baseball doesn't look like this anymore. Right? It's that was almost jarring just coming back seven seasons later, and uh, just how much the how does somebody like Colby Lewis get a World Series start uh, in twenty you know twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen? I just can't imagine you know, giving the ball to a guy who you know and. I think he stayed in too long, but he wasn't terrible. Um, just a, a pitcher with that repertoire. It's, you know, you you don't see stuff like this anymore. And we're talking about less than a decade ago. Yeah, it's befuddling. I, I definitely agree with you on the, the lineup construction. That's a that's a great one. Uh, 
as alluded to moments ago, I have no instant replay on this list. I, I found this maddening. I don't know. I got really annoyed, even though now when I watch games, I'm like, oh, my God, do we have to be spending 10 minutes on this? We all know what happened. Let's just make the call and move on. When I returned to a world without that degree of certainty, I felt very at sea (laughs) and was thrown immediately into a state of existential despair. So just to quickly run through the the specifics of this play here, Matt Holliday was ruled out on a laser pickoff throw from Napoli. This was at third base. First of all, where's he going? I I don't know. Matt Holliday, terrible game for Matt Holliday in a foot race, and he's on third base and like, what are you doing, man? You should be standing on the bag. Yeah, like it, the, it, it's the absolute. And by the way, bad. this is not Yadier Molina behind home plate. This is Mike Napoli. How does Mike Napoli backpick you? What is wrong with you? This is like brutal. Maybe that decision making from from Matt Holiday <laughs> has aged the worst. Terrible aged game for Holiday overall, replay. which I'm excited to to parse. But bases were loaded, right? Tie game, bottom of the sixth. Everything you just said is true. It's inexcusable to even be in the position where this could happen. But I think he's safe. I think he I don't. gets I, back in. No. You, no. you can at least argue that he might. You know, you know what makes me most sure, honestly, is that, is that McCarver said emphatically that he was out. So that I know that must be wrong. <laughs> You see, I, I think like you're you're proving your brain has been so wormed up by possible. The, by the replay world that you're looking for that tiny little legalistic loophole into you know oh but was he you know, did he get in you know did the I just fibers pursue, on his glove hit them? I just want to pursue certainty in this particular case because saying what a good call by the third by the third base ump and then saying you know Beltre is blocking the bag and talking about exclusively focusing on his right hand and Beltre blocking the right hand's path. Like, there's no, there wasn't even any discussion about whether his left hand maybe got it. I think that was what annoyed me most. It was just oh, like, okay, should have been. I think he was he move was on. It ended there. No challenge, no replay, no nothing. We just move on from this massive moment that could have had seismic consequences for the game. I don't know. I, I, I always, I'm a little bit at war with myself on this one because... I've been a long time human errors part of the game person, and then I see something like this now, and I know we have the option to get it right. And it just, it was, it was really graded at me. I have another holiday moment though that I'd like to throw out there. Well, I, I will say you're really proving your own point by taking as long as you are to just to break down this instant <laughs> replay point. But you're not even sure you believe it. So. I'm not sure I believe it. That's I, I, I am definitely not sure I believe it. I want the opportunity to have a discussion about it. That was what I didn't like, that we just moved on instantly. How We fucking still had a four and a half hour game. What good did this do anybody? It didn't save us time. I don't know. Anyway, my other nominee for the Matt Holiday uh, categories in particular, his slide into second base to break up the double play in the fourth yeah. after the young error earlier in the inning. I was fascinated by this. There was not only no discussion about how this was maybe dirty play. It was borderline lauded. This this yeah. really reflected how the game has changed in the last couple of years. I mean, this is literally the kind of play that, you know, Manny Machado last postseason was like, will he ever be able to sign a baseball contract again after he slid into second base like this? And Holiday unambiguously slides deliberately to try to take out Andres. Unambiguously. There's... This comment from McCarver 
he calls it very casually the takeout slide. And then, in fact, goes so far as to sort of condone it by saying that the ball not being hit hard allowed Holiday to get close enough to make that slide and try to take him out. Again, just to me, very reflective of, of how the, the game has changed. This, this kind of, that kind of slide's illegal now. Yeah, and that, I mean, you want to talk about watershed moments, like the the Utley slide on Ruben Tejada. Um, the, I mean, this is after the, the Scott Cousins on Buster Posey slide at home plate, but this is just when they're starting to realize, oh, wait, like this macho stuff when you're dealing with athletes as big as mm-hmm. as Matt Holiday can actually result in serious injury. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we started taking it seriously after that. But this is like right before uh, people started realizing that playing the game like you're trying to impress like 1966 Pete Rose could result in <laughs> people getting seriously hurt. Um, so that is definitely of its time. Can we quickly talk about what an awful game this was for Holiday? He, entering the game, got bumped down the lineup for Berkman. He had this slide that we just talked about. He got picked off third base with the bases loaded, as we just talked about. And then ultimately, he left the game injured. And this is the description. A severely bruised little finger. Now, after the game, it was clarified that it was his wrist, but he had to leave a World Series game with a little finger injury. (laughs) And then he missed Game 7 of the World Series because he was hurt. Brutal. Yeah. I mean, not to belittle the the little finger injury, which saying little finger around you makes me... Pizza, please. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I, wonder if, uh, I wonder if anyone took Matt Holiday to the veil. Oh, boy. <laughs> I have a couple more nominees for this category. Uh, leaving bad corner outfielders in on defense late. That is a yep. por- very poorly. <laughs> very, very poorly. Cruz is in. And yes, he hit well in the postseason. You know, tied the record with eight home runs. But a better defensive right fielder than Nelson Cruz, if if not catches the David Freeze ball, then at least makes a better play on it and does not mm-hmm. necessarily give up that abomination of a game-tying extra innings forcing triple. This also, by the way, happened when the Rangers were in a prevent no doubles D. And that still happened, which is pretty wild i also had leaving starters in too long which you yeah, you noted i mean we'll, we'll save that for the 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 bad calls decision we can assess oh, it more there the the corner out your corner outfield point like it's not as if like there's no reason that if you unless you expect Feliz to to blow the game like what do you need Cruz in there before if you've got esteban herman in um on the bench like He's, his spot's not going to come back up again. And it's not like this hasn't come up in an extra inning game six of the World Series before. The idea of leaving your bad defensive corner guy in and and having it come back to bite you. So, yeah, that's not a great decision. Now, I don't know if that's age the worst, but just because it, it didn't seem that smart at the time. Yeah, brutal. Uh, a couple other quick ones. Literally, Jaime Garcia. Like, I, I, I was shocked to see him 25 years old, young and fresh, and then realized that somehow from 2011 to 2019, he'd gone from 25 to 50. I, I don't know how that happened, but it did. It actually really made me sad. I, I I used to really have a lot of Garcia stock. I would draft him every year in fantasy. I mean, he really looked like one of the rising stars in baseball coming off his 
top three rookie of the year finish in 2010. He started games two and six of the World Series for the Cardinals. And then, you know, injuries just really, really, really claimed much of his career from there. You know, he didn't reach 130 innings in any of the next four seasons. And right now, he's he's only 32 right now. He's entering his age 32 season, and it feels like another life when he was a rising star in the game. His his beard, beard grooming has aged well, though. That was, that was great. I yeah, thought generally— uh, tech on the broadcast. You know, I, I actually laughed out loud when we had the Fox hotspot infrared tracker to see if Colby Lewis's foot had, you know, to see how Colby Lewis's foot had failed to to reach the bag on the young throwing error in the fourth. I had completely forgotten that that tech was a so thing. So I forgot about that. And like, yeah. that's obviously not necessary. But one year after this, we get, we use the hotspot to learn that Hunter Pence hit a pitch three different times in one swing. <laughs> so I, it's true. I will say generally I agree with your point, but the hotspot specifically did provide one important contribution to baseball history down the road. So great note. I thought in general, just the the role of not only technology, but uh modernity on the broadcast, specifically with the way Tim McGarver talks about baseball. I mean mm-hmm. We'll get to him at length in a few minutes, but really just the nature of like explaining what was happening in the game as though everybody tuning in was watching baseball for the first time. Like I found that pretty alienating. And I think especially in contrast to the modern day baseball broadcast experience where we're seeing advanced analytics increasingly introduced into the broadcast experience and the viewers treated, if not as an expert, at least as somebody who would be open to learning in an advanced, elevated way. And this was literally like, here's how a shortstop turns a double play. Here's why the hit and run is useful. Very tough. This was Tim McCarver on his last legs. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's tough to take away grandpa's car keys. So (laughs) I'm a little sympathetic, but. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. So those were my nominees. What's your pick? If there's a way to combine your broadcast technology and modernity and the like change of pitching like this does feel way more just overall as a visual experience it feels way more dated Mm -hmm. than eight or nine years ago Mm -hmm. if i could sort of cheat a little bit that's what i would pick let's do it let's cheat together i'm in favor of that all right half-assed internet research uh my i've got a couple things but my two favorite are about Derek holland uh Derek Uh, holland who this is about the time where everybody decided that uh, Derek Holland was funny because he could do an impression of uh, Will Ferrell doing an impression of Harry Carey. But he had a great year and a great World Series. And he became, in the uh, top of the seventh inning, uh, the first relief pitcher to score a run in a World Series game since 1977. He is the only uh, the only American league relief pitcher uh, to score a run in a playoff game since the designated hitter was instituted. So this is half-assed because I was able to figure all this out in one uh, search on the baseball reference play index. <laughs> right, so a reliever has scored a run only 26, time in ma- 26 times in Major League Baseball playoff history, but Jesse Barnes did it twice in four games in the 1921 World Series. He was also the winning pitcher in both games. Uh, so that it, it just struck it like, wait, an American League relief pitcher scored a run 
in this World Series game. That's how weird it is. Uh, other Derek Holland fact, my other de- favorite Derek Holland fact is in 2014, he tripped over his dog, fell down the stairs, blew out his knee and missed most of the season, which is something I think about whenever my cat is underfoot and Ollie. I trip over him. So Aww. there are no Ollie stairs would never in my hurt home. you. Ollie would never he would never do you. it on purpose. I don't think Derek Holland's dog Wrigley uh, did it on purpose, but there were definitely catastrophic co- consequences. Uh, Wrigley is also the name of Bryce Harper's dog. Wow. So that is half-assed internet Derek Holland research. Do you think Bryce Harper will change his dog's name to be more Phillies appropriate? No, I think it's like Chipper Jones naming one of his kids Shay, <laughs> just because like that's an all-time great own is Chipper Jones saying, I liked hitting in the Mets ballpark so much. <laughs> incredible. I'm going to name one of my kids after it. I, you know, I think that's got to be what it is with with Harper. Amazing. I thought one of your Holland facts might be uh, might be something about his mustache, but oh well. Uh, uh, I forgot about it for what, what's age the worst. <laughs> so many facial hair facts in this podcast. Um, I had a couple. It's different, you know, for sports with them with the movie podcast where so much of it is about like rumors and whispers this is like a lot of these are just facts casting but, what know. ifs what if the rangers had re-signed cliff lee yeah <laughs> uh if bucks game winning home run call we'll see you tomorrow night sounded familiar that's because his father jack used the exact same words to call kirby puckett's game six walk off in 1991 and buck told the new york times after the game that it was not planned he had not decided in advance to use that phrase. It's just he had he and McCarver had been talking about the Puckett Homer earlier in the game because that was the trivia question was game six walk-offs, which obviously wound up being very prescient. And All-time great trivia question. Yeah, this was just, it was in him, and then the words came out. I think that's that's pretty cool that father and son had the, the same call. Uh, a couple other little nuggets here. I find this one... Notable for the Dodgers, who in the last two postseasons became the first team since the Rangers to lose consecutive World Series. Three teams have returned to the World Series a third straight time after losing two in a row. The 1909 Detroit Tigers, the 1913 New York Giants, and the 1923 New York Yankees. Only the Yankees won it that third time. Doesn't bode super well for the Dodgers. Uh, According to CBS, The Game 6 rain postponement, because this game was supposed to be played the the day prior and got preemptively moved due to the weather forecast. This was the first World Series to go two straight games with two straight days, rather, without a game because the rain delay followed the scheduled off day since 89. The earthquake, 10 day delay in Athletics Giants. And McCarver was next to a buck for both of those. Uh, And then finally, this one, I, I, I'm trying. I'm going to try to say this in a way that doesn't sound um, cruel. This is just a, this is a fact. The 2011 season was when Joe Buck feared that his broadcast career might be over, might be in jeopardy because of his hair plug addiction. Okay, we found I was wondering if this was going to come. Up. Okay, following a pre-season, so before that baseball season procedure, hair plug procedure, he ended up having a traumatized left vocal cord. And he, he, he has since written about this in a book, talked about it in interviews. But at the time, w- was not revealing the truth about what had caused this vocal cord. And we only learned after the fact that it was, it was the hair plug addiction and the hair plug surgery. That was the season, 2011. Pretty wild. I mean, no, no history of Joe Buck can be complete without 
his hair plugs. I quite agree. Let's go to the greatest what if slash sliding doors moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a couple that I want to to bring out. First, the first three batters of, of the game, the first three Rangers batters of the game reach. And Garcia gets out of the inning with only one run. Uh, Adrian Beltre was wearing him down a little bit. That felt like they could have broken the game open right there. Uh, yeah. That was the first time where I thought, how, you know, how did Texas lose this? Um, there was another moment right before the home run. This is sort of a, a fallacy of the predetermined outcome thing, but Mark Lowe went down 3 nothing to to freeze right mm-hmm. before the home run. And the fourth pitch was probably a little high, uh, but when it's 3-0, the next pitch is automatically a strike if the batter doesn't swing. That's practically how how umpires call the game. Um, and so it got called a strike and freezes at bat, got extended. So who knows how the game could have transpired if he hadn't homered on on that pitch after that. And obviously the, the Nelson Cruz missed catch in the ninth inning. Interesting. I like those all. I had, what if this game hadn't been preemptively pushed back a day because of the threat of rain? Just who knows? What might have been different? How would the the forces of the universe have have changed to impact the game differently? One thing we I think we can say for sure is the ripple effect is that Chris Carpenter would not have been able to start game seven. So even if even if the Cardinals had won game six, if this had been earlier, mm-hmm. he would not have been ready, right, to start game seven. He had started game five. And so he ended up starting game seven still on very short rest, but that extra day allowed allowed La Russa to to decide to put Carpenter, their ace at the time, in. And he, they they won. The Cardinals won game seven, six, two. So I, I like to think about that, about the effect of the rain delay, not the rain postponement, not only on game six, but on game seven. And then this is a, a sort of another philosophical one, less specific to the events of the game itself. But if the Cardinals lose, if they lose this game and the Rangers win the World Series, does Albert Pujols stay in St. Louis? No. I don't think so. He had already won a title there, right? So yeah. it's not like he had this toe unfinished business thing. But I don't know. I kind of can't help but wonder if anything would have been different if the final taste of his St. Louis experience had been bitter instead of instead of sweet. I, I ultimately agree with you and think that he he would have gone to the Angels regardless, especially given the nature of how he's talked about that decision and what made him leave. But eh, fun to think about as a sliding door. I still think getting to the World Series after that season is kind of a, a nice enough high to go out on, particularly because LaRusso was gone after that season and Chris Carpenter came back in 2012, but he was kind of obviously cooked at that point. I don't really know if that would have made a whole lot of difference or unless it, you know, losing that World Series inspired the, the Cardinals to go to 10 years and $250 million in their contract, or, you know, instead of maybe uh, it would have though, letting him walk. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Oh, we have to pick a greatest one. Uh, I, mean, I really like to think about the rain. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's interesting to think about because that that decision was, it was like, we don't want to risk it. We don't want to risk a messy game. So let's just move it. You know, there's no roof, obviously, in St. Louis. Yeah. And then the ripple effect of that, it's just, it's a fascinating thing to think so- about. It was one thing I was ready to, to nail Ron Washington to the, to the wall for was um, not managing as if he was sufficiently afraid of Carpenter. Like you think about um, mm-hmm. the in the 86 NLCS, uh, Davey Johnson was so terrified of facing Mike Scott in game seven that he just threw everything at the at, at everything in the kitchen sink uh, at winning game six. And Wash kind of managed like that. 
I don't think he managed his pitching staff ideally. Um, like he still brought in Holland in relief, for instance. You know, I don't know what other bullets he really had to, or what other cards he really had to play, but it did sort of seem like he didn't like his team's odds against uh, against Carpenter with, you know, with good reason. Carpenter was incredible that entire playoffs. Good but segue in terms of, into the next category, though. With well, this I was going to say talk. picking the rain when there's a famous mis, you know, defensive miscue when you're down to the last strike that ends up swinging the World Series. It feels a little it feels like you're getting a little cute. I am getting um, cute, but mostly cuz I want to I'm I I feel like I've gone too heavy on the on the cruise play in other categories. So Well, it's huge. <laughs> like that's true. You know, I I I'm also worried about beating that drum and you know, poor Nelson Cruz. But like this is a massively historically consequential play, so I think it's okay if we uh, if we dwell on it a little bit. All right. Hold on. Let me let me let me interrogate that for a second. Is that a what if? In the sense that like if he makes the play, it's over. There's no th- there's no like ensuing set of events, right? Okay. That's how I'm gonna justify it, 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 not picking okay. it. <laughs> okay. So if if you're if you're conceiving the question that way, that it makes sense to pick the rain. Well, it wouldn't be an episode of rewatchables if we didn't have some Art, sort of debate yeah, about what the questions actually semantic, mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, because definitely the rain, I mean, if you're going to go with the rain, though, like, what if Adam Wainwright's healthy if he doesn't miss that entire season? Well, that's a, that's a um, great one. I encourage you to explore that. Do they, do the Cardinals win the division? Do the, the do the Braves make the wild card and the, uh, and the Brewers get knocked out of uh, playoff contention that year? You know, maybe the Phillies go all the way to the World Series and are anointed as their uh, 100-win, four-ace team uh, should rightly have been. What if Cliff Lee doesn't get Babbitt to death in Game 2 of the, the NLDS? As I'm just... I got a lot of emotional baggage about the 2011 playoffs. I can uh, tell. Even several years down the, down the line. Um, so, yeah. I can tell. So let's buddy. go with the rain, then. That seems like a good way to stop <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> okay. Dion Waiters Award for Best Heat Check. I'm not sure how you define a heat check in baseball. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if it's the hottest guy, then then Freeze and Berkman certainly seem like uh, prime candidates for this. If it's coming up in the, you know, coming up big in the biggest moments, then you got to add Hamilton to the list. You know, I'm curious to see what your shortlist for this award was, which, you know, we can talk about what that really entails. When I think of this category and the fact that it is named after Syracuse sixth man of the year, Deion Waiters, uh, I almost eliminate true stars from being eligible because it's to me, it's someone who is uh, attempting to outkick his coverage of a, in the set, scope of his ability and what he would normally contribute to the game. Um I think part of the equation here is whether we're just talking about this game or we're talking about the series, the postseason even, you know, I think that Napoli is probably the most logical pick. He was obviously really good for the entire World Series, which if we're just talking about this game, maybe disqualifies him. But the fact that Mike Napoli, who was certainly not the player you would think would make the biggest difference for the Rangers on either side of the ball, had crucial defensive plays and was on base five times in this game, I think makes him a pretty good pick. You know, I think you can make a case for Holland, even though he gave up the Craig Homer in the eighth. He hadn't given up a run in the World Series until that point. 
being used as a starter, being used as a reliever, reliever, flexible pitching usage. And then I think old Berkman, you know, you, you could, again, get into the, the philosophy of the question, and is he too good of a player over the course of his career to even be eligible? Or is he eligible anew because of the phase of his career that he was in? I think he maybe is. And so then I like I like him as a, as a contender for it. But I, I don't know. This question's really tough with a baseball game. It really yeah. is. If you're putting it that way, uh, I think I like Napoli just because this is really coming out moment for him. And he's sort of been that guy on half a dozen playoff teams between the, um, you know, the Indians and the Red Sox and, and these, uh, these Rangers teams. I want to throw one other name in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Sepchinski, mm-hmm. who was a nobody middle reliever who got thrown in, in a trade in July. Um, you know, I don't know where he even ranks on the, uh, important players in this, is this deal with, Colby Rasmus and Octavio Dotel. Um, but he, so he got shelled uh, in game one of the NLDS against the Phillies. And then he came in to pitch 11 more times in the postseason and allow one earned run. And uh, I think deserves special mention for getting it, for pitching a clean inning in this game. Uh, I'm not, this might have been the only clean inning in the entire game. He was definitely the only Cardinal pitcher not to allow a base runner. Right. Uh, so this was like the, this October 2011 was this absolutely anonymous uh, middle reliever who turned into a gigantically important player on this Cardinals team. So I think if we're broadening it to the entire postseason, I think it might still be Napoli, but I think Zepchinski is a, he deserves mention in the conversation. I like that logic. That's good. I'm, I'm ultimately going to go with Napoli because I think if we think about this really through the basketball lens of like attempting a shot that you basically should not attempt to see like how hot you are, of, uh, check yeah. how hot you are, then... The Napoli pickoff throw, as you noted earlier, really is the the definition of a heat check. Like, the fact that he did that is kind of unbelievable. The bases were loaded. After he got his, his foot almost taken off, like, they were talking right. about it yeah. like it was the, like, he's going to need a blood transfusion in the dugout. You know, and it, and it was nasty, but, like, he came in and he's like, like, he got back behind the plate. And he's like, yes, I am Kirk Gibson now. This is this is my time to shine. Yeah, this that does feel like a heat. Okay. We're going Napoli for for heat check. Wonderful. Uh, so we're just going to keep doing the Tim McCarver Memorial Team or broadcast team complaint corner because we've literally been complaining about Tim McCarver for this entire podcast. I've honestly been exercising restraint in anticipation of this category. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me just read extracts uh, from Please. what I have written down. Yeah, Tim I McCarver have so saying, many. <laughs> So I'll read a couple of them, we'll go to you, and then I've got one big one at the very end. Okay. Uh, Tim McCarver oh. saying Elvis Andrews should s- try to steal in the top of the 10th with Josh Hamilton up and Yadier Molina behind the plate. <laughs> this, this is literally what I said. Are you fucking kidding? I believe you had it in all caps. <laughs> yeah. Hamilton, and by the way, Hamilton homers like immediately after he says that. Um, the big one, like... I'm sympathetic to this because I've, I've, you know, I've covered long extra inning World Series games, and I know that, you know, it it gets tough to remember who's been in the game, who's out of the game. But they talked about Jaime Garcia coming into pinch hit for like a couple minutes before they realized that he started the game and was therefore ineligible. That was tough. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what do you have? A series of quotes that I would happily see stitched onto throw pillows. Uh, this one's very early in the game. By the way, if anybody wants to do that. Yeah, please. We'll support your Etsy store. (laughs) Send us your Pinterest link. 
The Cardinals are hoping that they can get Pujols up there without any intention of walking him intentionally. Just some of the phrasing play in these statements is really, truly delectable. I will say also, one of the downsides of watching the game at 1.25 or 1.5 speed on YouTube is that you just end up having to hit pause and rewind to listen to every McCarver line over and over again. So I'm, I'm not sure it's a, a time save in the end. Uh, another one here. This is an iconic one. A good theory on pitching is use the middle of the plate for strikes. It's not a theory on pitching. <laughs> what? It's uh, also not a theory of pitching that I would su- subscribe to because so I mean bizarre. maybe that's how maybe that's how nineteen runs ended up getting scored <laughs> scored in this game. I was laughing so hard at that. Uh, you've heard that expression second time through the lineup. This is the second time the Rangers has have faced yeah, Jaime Garcia. Again, like, what? Let's see. I'm going to use some exercise, some discipline, and not read all of these. Hmm. Oh, I enjoyed this. This was coming back from a Ken Rosenthal report about whether Carpenter should start Game 7. And McCarver said, all those things that Ken said may be true. However... <laughs> and that's it doesn't a great even, way to start a yeah, it, it doesn't even matter what he says next. It's just, that's like that's absolutely iconic. Uh, this was this was his analysis after the play where Freeze drifted to the dugout and almost almost fell over the wall in the third inning. McCarver said, "A rule of thumb is if you think it's going to be near the fence, go there <laughs> and then back off." Like, I sort of get what he's saying. Like, you want to, you know... Yeah, of course. As yeah. is so often the case. I mean, so many... Even even the even the, the pitching zone strike comment, you know, his his next comment was, and then expand the strike zone. So some of this is, is, a, is a little unfair to take a snippet of it and isolate it. But the phrasing is just is so delightful. Uh, Buck said, said this about McCarver. Rifled through one partner after another over the years. Play-by-play guys in your wake. I loved that. That was fabulous. Is that a complaint? I he was he was like joking and they were they were, you know, having fun with each other, but it was uh you sense some truth, I think, beneath the beneath the jest. Um this was after the after Salas threw the ball into center for the error while fielding a bunt. McCarver said, I think Salas thought if he could get the ball to second base, the double play would be completed. Well, like probably. Yes, yes. by 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 definition, that's that's what he thought. And then this is my favorite. This is a sequence. The Rangers did look a good, uh... And there's a very long silence. And then he says, never mind. And then Buck says, we'll get back to you. Here comes a 1-0. One ball, one strike. And then McCarver chimes back in. They did look that gift horse in the mouth, didn't they? And then Buck says, I was wondering where you were going. Glad you brought it home. And McCarver said, I was too. <laughs> Especially well, you read these out makes me want to go watch Brockmire. Oh, man. Love Brockmire. All right. Uh, so I've got one more okay. uh, that I want to use as a segue for uh, a category that is unique to sports rewatchables, the Grady Little Award for Biggest Coaching Fuck-Up. Mm. Um can you tell Bill name that category? Uh, so, so this is mine. Uh, in the tenth inning, Tim McCarver suggested uh, the Rangers walk Pujols to put the winning run on base and pitch to a red hot Lance Berkman, who, like, it bears repeating, is a really good hitter himself. And the award goes to Wash because he just 
Then Wash turns around and goes and does exactly that. <laughs> yeah. You want to know what happens? Lance Berkman singles to center field and ties the game. He sure does. Yeah. He sure does. So, it's not what you want, as Joe Girardi no, would it's say. Not. Definitely not. Um, other nominees, no doubles defense with John Jay on second representing the tying run. Yes. Like, even if you cut it off, he's going to score. The other big one is, you know, maybe I'm being too harsh just because I've watched the past five years of playoff baseball, but Colby Lewis stayed in this game mm-hmm. forever. Yeah, I have that one, too. On the John Jay point, they actually said on the broadcast right before that, John Jay could walk home. And yeah, that's exactly what ended up happening. Uh, Pretty much. Uh, on, the, on the Colby Lewis front, so the bases are loaded in the fifth inning. Two outs. Rangers are up 4-3. Ron Washington let Colby Lewis hit. I kind of can't get over that. You oh, have the that's bases not... loaded in a World Series game, and you you have a chance to pinch hit and drive in more runs, and you let the pitcher hit. And to your earlier point, he'd been in the game for a while already, and it's not like you're—like, this isn't Sandy Koufax. It's okay to take Colby Lewis out of the game. You weren't offended by this? I was going to say, this is actually not the moment where I said you're—where I wrote down, you're letting the pitcher hit, are you fucking shitting me? Because uh, <laughs> that came in the seventh <laughs> inning when— he let Derek Holland hit. There's mm-hmm. so some of this, some of this I just don't get. But also the Rangers pitchers were so bad at bunting. They left so many runs on yeah. the board. It's one thing if if you say, okay, you know, we're gonna try to have our starting pitchers who are nominally able to handle the bat a little bit, uh, you know, get a bunt down, but they couldn't even get the bunt down. You know, Lewis bunted into a double play earlier in the game. There's just there's a lot of this that is suboptimal managing that is made so much worse by really terrible execution. Yeah. I mean, so. there was also, it became like a meta commentary in the game. And you had the moment in the sixth where Washington came out to talk to Lewis and Buck and McCarver were both certain that it was time for a pitching change. And then it, it wasn't. You know, he stayed into face freeze for the third time, despite Holland and Agondo both warming up, both being ready. And then he walked freeze. And then Wash finally made the change after that, at which point Agondo comes in and walks in Yachty to tie the game. So it's not like, as we've noted throughout the course of the episode, like, it's not like the bullpen. And then came in and was Sterling, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that the decision to to not pull Colby Lewis at a couple of these moments, either when he was pitching or when he was hitting, uh, is any less befuddling in in hindsight. And then, I mean, we've talked about it a million times, but you obviously have to put not removing Cruz on defense in, in the ninth in this category. It's astonishing. Yeah. It's astonishing. I mean, that's one of those things that like it's a bad managerial move that's not going to come back to bite you ninety nine times out of a hundred, but the one time it does, like. This happens, or the Buckner thing happens, or Greg Lazinski happens. Um, if I had to pick one, it's letting Holland hit in the seventh, just because you've got Mike Adams with a bunch of righties coming up, warmed up in your in your bullpen. Um, and then when he finally does go to Adams, or to say nothing of Neftali Felice, who Joe Buck says they're willing to use him for four or five ats if necessary. By the time you actually bring him in, uh, it's to pitch to Gerald Laird who, first of all, there has never been a baseball player who looked more like his name than Gerald Laird. Uh, <laughs> but two, could not obvious, could not more obviously have been a decoy. And then they they bring in Daniel Descalso, who, like, Adams pitched really well in his short, short stint, um, and they got out of it, and they should have won this game anyway. But that just, it's a failure to, I don't even know if I want to call it a failure to think ahead, because the only reason you let... Holland hit is you're thinking ahead. I just don't know what he was thinking when he was looking down the road. 
Tough game for Wash. Yeah. All right. Uh, this makes for something of an ironic segue because uh, my first nomination for Apex Mountain is Ron Washington. Okay, so how can how can both things be true? Let's explore this dissonance. How can it be a bad game for Wash, and also how can he be a candidate for Apex Mountain? So it's less about this game uh-huh. than it is uh, this entire run that Ron Washington had been a beloved assistant coach, uh, mostly with the Oakland A's for decades, and he finally got his chance to manage. And everybody was rooting for him so hard. He's like he's one of those great characters like almost like a he he has a folklore in and of himself because he's such a great storyteller he's interacted with so many people like he has so many is so many great stories to tell uh and he got this exciting team and and you know really got everybody on board managed this really fun kinetic style offense and to say nothing of ron washington's greatest moment of uh pop culture penetration is in Moneyball, where the Ron Washington character is in, in uh, involved in recruiting Scott Hatterberg, and they have the famous exchange, you know, playing first base is easy. Tell him, Wash, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> and so Moneyball comes out just weeks before the postseason starts. So I think this is like the moment of Ron Washington's greatest cultural relevance. And even with the, the bad game he called, he uh-huh. probably still wins the World Series if his shutdown bullpen managed to pitch even an average game. Right. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, I actually had him as well for, for much the same reason. And I, I think I think Bobby did too. Bobby, did you also? Is it a sweep? You yeah. Did. Factoring in the fact that Apex Mountain is like cultural influence and also peak of powers. Right. I feel like it's hard to argue that this wasn't his peak of powers. If you're going to take also the whole postseason into consideration, it's kind of been on a downward slope since then. And I don't think you could argue that he peaked before then. So I guess by default. Yeah, I think we have to be able to pan back beyond just this one game and, and yeah. take the entire postseason and, and the entire run into account. I mean, getting getting a team to a World Series two years in a row is really hard. That's an amazing thing. Uh, obviously, David Freeze is another candidate for Apex Mountain. I think we'll all agree on that. He's lived on this postseason legend reputation for so long, but I mean, he had a great, great postseason as well. It wasn't just these two at-bats, but it's there aren't a hundred players in baseball history who have had a game bigger than this. So this has got to be Apex Mountain. Yeah, I mean, he was the NLCS and the World Series MVP. So to your point about it, it not just being, you know, one or two at-bats. I mean, it was incredible. You, you don't really, even if it had just been that one at-bat, though, like, you kind of don't beat a game-winning World Series home run. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a big deal. <laughs> Bill Mazeroski's a, a Hall of Famer, and his apex mountain is still that one home run. So yeah, and then you factor in the fact that he's a hometown kid. You know, grew up rooting mm-hmm. for the Cardinals. All that 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 certainly uh, adds to the the lore. And you know, again, it wasn't just the home run tripling off the leaves on the bottom of the ninth, and redeeming himself from the pop up. That's all just together the the perfect recipe. And and his his jersey and bat from this game are in fucking Cooperstown. Like that's the definition of apex mountain. All right. Uh, Tony Larusa. Hmm. Are you asking me or are you telling me? I have I have an opinion, but I want to hear what you think first. I don't know. I didn't consider him for the category. Okay. Honestly, but I'm I'm intru- I'm ready to be swayed. Sway me. No, I I think it's worth asking just because how many managers, how many, certainly how many managers who were in the game as long as he was and accomplished as much went out on top like this. Yeah. Uh, but I think Apex Mountain for him is probably the 88 to 90 Oakland yeah. A's. That was yeah. when he was like 
inventing the closer and and managing you know Maguire and Canseco and Ricky Henderson. So I think it's worth bringing it up. But Apex Mountain was farther in the past. I agree. Um, Josh Hamilton. Oh, oh, Napoli. Okay, I have both of those um, guys, so I'm ready to talk about either. No, I think Apex Mountain for Napoli is party at Napoli's. <laughs> okay. This might be the peak of his, his powers as a player, or mm-hmm. close to it, but he still has, like, setting off the dirty beard aesthetic of the 2013 Red Sox and, and party at Napoli's from the 2016 Indians. Like, he's got a lot of legend building still to go, as opposed to the Freeze, who, like, him being a platoon first baseman for the Dodgers in 2018 right. doesn't come close to, like, Napoli is still on the up. Interesting. But if you assess just his playing career and you remove... The other factors, do you think that there's more of a case just in terms of on-field production? So this was that one year where he played, where he had a, a 173 OPS or 173 OPS plus um, as a catcher, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. Uh, he also yeah, was this is traded, probably, he was traded twice in five days in the offseason. I mean, yeah, that's to, to go from that to being a contender for World Series MVP is, is pretty wild, pretty notable. Move to first all-time for our World Series RBI against the Cardinals in, in this game? All-time? Like, career? That's not like Mickey Mantle or something? That's what they said during the broadcast, man. I don't know. We might have to fact-check the broadcast. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but maybe in a single World Series? I don't know. Because this was the, the first World Series he played in. That was, there's no way that's, that's all-time. Um, yeah, Apex Mountain is a player, I think, it's a, as a cultural figure. He still has a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh Hamilton, Apex Mountain or no? I don't think so. No. Okay. Now I just, I, I don't know. He was, the moment, the home run and the moment makes you want to say yes. But I don't think we can pick a season where he was less than peak production and was hurt when the prior season was an MVP campaign and he has one of, he's responsible for one of the most iconic moments in baseball history with the home run derby performance. I mean, there are just so many other things, even just with his home run hitting that that stand out or rival this. Again, to your earlier point, maybe if they had won, we'd think about that home run yeah. differently. But I think because they didn't and because he has so many other highlights in his career, I'm going to say no. Okay. Are you saying yes? I came into this thinking yes, but I think you and Bobby talked me out of it over, over the past couple of days. Okay. I think if I had to pick a moment, like the the home run derby, maybe you know, maybe if they hold that lead in the tenth, this home run is the the biggest moment. Um, that's that's a footnote at this point. Pujols, Apex Mountain or now? Definitely not. Yeah, I think at the very latest, it's at, after his back to back MVP seasons in 0809. That's my vote. Um, He's definitely like he's not on the decline, I would say, but he's definitely he's about from, to be. <laughs> yeah, this is a, the first season since 2002 that he didn't make the all star team. Um, OK, I think that's got pretty much everybody covered. OK, um, let's go rapid fire here at the end. All right. Funniest in- in-game network promo. I was disappointed. I was expecting like uh, his father is the district attorney level. Uh <laughs> Like to be reminded of of some Fox show that lasted for eleven episodes in, in twenty eleven, and, and just nothing really came to mind. Uh, there was an NFL promo. There was a, a Junior Dos Santos versus Kane Velasquez heavyweight MMA fight that they promoted, which maybe Kevin Clark or or Chuck Mendenhall could uh, 
could tell us if that's funny now, but I couldn't tell you. The Jay Edgar promo is technically a, a network <laughs> promo, but that was the equivalent of, of skin. You got anything else to add? Jay Edgar made me laugh. Yeah, I, I want to go just slightly deeper into the NFL one for a second to okay. mention a specific line from it. So this was entering the top of the eighth. We get the Fox NFL promo for that that upcoming week's slate of games and includes this line. The Lions square off against Tim Tebow and the Broncos. Yes! Yeah! <laughs> I must have glossed over that one. I, Tim Tebow, who's now a baseball player, who's yeah. now like the Mets' fifth best outfielder. Yeah, that was a that was fantastic. That was really all I needed. Um, other than that, I really I have to say I really enjoyed the Genio Turkey promos to <laughs> make the switch to Genio Turkey. And the Genio Turkey called the bullpen. The Rangers switch partners. Excuse me. The Rangers switch pitchers. Genio. Yikes. That's a different kind of... <laughs> so, that's for uh, MLB rewatchables after dark when we talk yeah. about that. The, the Rangers switch pitchers. Genio invites you to switch to Turkey. I was compelled by this, I have to say. Uh, we talked about the trivia question about Game 6 World Series home runs. How yeah. many games six in World Series history have ended with a, a home run? Obviously, this game will go on to end in a home run. Uh, so, you know, a trivia question is sort of a promo-ish of sorts, kind of. Uh, that was pretty wild. I was marveling at, at how those home runs uh, were all like legendary baseball history events. And I'm thinking, wait, a World Series walk-off in game six is like almost by definition going to be... Uh, his, you know, major historical events of so the the pocket one and Joe Carter and Carlton Fisk, Fisk and, yeah. and so on. And and Freeze now. Yeah. <laughs> Joining the list of legends. Uh, Bobby said that he saw a Fringe promo. I missed this. I didn't see it. I'm I very it sad too. I didn't yeah. see it because I, I loved Fringe. So that would have been a delight to, to see. I was going to make a joke about something about parallel dimensions and maybe that's why you didn't see it. But if I'm in a parallel dimension with uh, with Peter, then I'm happy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> All right, hottest retroactive take, one you wish you had in the moment. Uh, this is my, hard. My take, so I've I've given two of them already, though what the hell was Matt Holiday thinking and why is Derek Holland hitting? Beyond that, Ian Kinsler spent a lot of this game just moping. <laughs> I will say, like, you know, it's as reluctant as I usually am to police body language on baseball players, like, not a great game for Ian Kinsler. Yeah. Well, listen, a tip for the rewatchables era. Everybody looks like they're hustling when you watch at 1.5 speed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really struggled with this one. I landed on a, a retroactive hot take that I don't fully believe, but I will share for the sake That's of the discussion. Yeah. This was the end of the Rangers era. I wish that at the time I had really felt that, even though it kind of isn't true, but that's part of why it would be a good hot take is because it isn't totally true. So Again, this might seem ludicrous to say because the Rangers went on to make the playoffs three of the next five years. They won the division in 2015 and 2016. They traded for Cole Hamels in 2015. They signed Hugh Darvish in the postseason after this World mm -hmm. Series. They still had Josh Hamilton for another year. He finished fifth in MVP voting in 2012. By no definition did the, the Rangers like fade out of relevance after this game. By no definition. But... They lost in the wild card in 2013. They lost in the LDS in 15 and 16. 16 was a sweep. They finished in fifth place in 2014. Now they are on a just full-on quest at this point in time to return to relevance in the division. They finished 23 games out two years ago, 36 games out last year. And 
the fact that they were relevant and competitive for a while after the loss makes this a, a, a tantalizing hot take, the thing you, you can imagine hearing on, on talk radio. It really does feel like when you return to this moment, despite all of that success that still followed and all the other chances that they had to win a title and all of the other efforts that they made, sincere efforts to build a team around stars, this was really the night that it died. It really was. I mean, top prospects like Profar never really panned out. It just didn't click from this moment forward. And again, you get to the World Series two years in a row and you don't win one. It's 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 maybe not happening. So Dodgers fans, I, I apologize for for pointing that out. But I don't know. Feels like that would have been a fun thing to say at the time. I don't think people were saying that, that at, the time. at the time. At the time, people I, were like, no, the Rangers are fine. They're great. Yeah, They're going to be great. And, and they were. <laughs> <laughs> and they were looking at guys like Profar coming up, and and Ruggio Dor was in the pipeline at this point, and you know, and they signed Darvish. I think the that middle three year stretch, I don't know. There is sort of a line where there's no Hamilton, there's you know Derek Holland's not really a factor. There's no Lewis Feliz is not really a factor. By the time they get back to the playoffs in fifteen and sixteen, but you can view that like there's continuity. You know, Beltre's there the entire time. Andrews is there the entire time. Michael Young's there for. Well, I guess he's not there either by the time they uh they get back. Um but like they made the wild card game the the next year. They technically missed the playoffs in 2013, but they were in a play they were in a one game playoff. Uh, I think it was with Tampa Bay for the second wild card spot. And I don't know, I kind of view 2010 through 2016 as one continuous run with, you know, associated roster turnover and just one really bad injury played year in the middle. That's why it would have been great to say at the time, this is when it all went wrong. And then now, all those years later, to be able to look back and say, I was right, even, I though, was, even though you weren't. I was a little right. I was sort of right. <laughs> Again, I don't believe that, but I thought it would be a fun okay. one to throw out as a thought experiment. All right. Uh, unintentional comedy. Mm. Uh, I have Elvis Andrews coming out to check on Freeze after he slammed into the railing on the the third. This was the you want to go to the wall. Yep. And wait <laughs> yeah. Wait. Uh, yeah. Andrews is like out of the dugout immediately because he thought Freeze had died or something. Uh, that was pretty funny. A nice moment of sportsmanship there. Um, I have uh, Michael Young just dropping the ball. David Freeze just dropping the ball. Uh, Holiday getting backpicked. Uh, it, this was. Something that I think gets uh, gets lost to history is uh, the next very next batter after Nelson Cruz's adventure in right field. It's a medium depth fly ball to Nelson Cruz, and you're thinking, "Oh no!" It's, yeah, like I knew it was <laughs> wasn't going to happen again, but it took took a second to remember that that wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, all of the defensive blunders and uh, and base running blunders are lots of unintentional comedy, unintentionally comedic. How about how about Nolan Ryan Cam? Oh, for unintentional yeah. comedy. What was going on with this? You couldn't go more than four pitches in the game without panning to Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan is like a gigantic. I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but he's a gigantic figure in in Texas baseball history. Just because he was, I mean, he's a Texas guy. He pitched for both the the Astros and the Rangers, and he sort of embodies that like. I'm going to drive an extremely clean Ford F350 dually on the highway to, you know, from my my job in Houston to my um to my house in Spring and it's never going to get dirty. He pitched like the kind of guy who drives that truck. So he's beloved and he was an executive with the Rangers at, at this point. Um so he was instrumental in in turning the team around. So there's obviously like you pan to him like 
if a team had a, a general manager or an owner mm-hmm. who was an you know an instrumental part of or you know who was a Hall of Fame caliber player, obviously you'd pan to him. I think what makes this funny is that his head looks very round. Yeah, there's something like, about his posture and his facial he's expression. Bald that- and he's sort of slouching, and he's you know the way he's dressed and the way he's sitting just makes him look like one of the the heads in a tank from Futurama. <laughs> and he's got this sort of dyspeptic, hypertensive facial expression on the entire time. And he did not look like you know I've seen Nolan Ryan was uh, at Astros games all the time uh, over the past couple of years. And there are times when he seems like he's having a good time. He didn't seem like he was enjoying this. So. That That's the thing. Like, of course, yes, it makes sense to pan to Nolan Ryan. But it was two things. One, the volume, just the sheer amount of times it happened. And then two, as you said, the, the, the way he looked, he looked so distressed throughout the entire game. And I think... If this were happening today, it's just so many of these shots would would have been instant memes. I think yes, in particular, yeah. after Ogando walked in Yadi to tie the game, the way that Nolan Ryan looks. Going it full is, Winston Churchill. It is misery in a grimace in one glimpse. I mean, that would be just perfect meme fodder today. Alas. I, don't, I mean, it's on YouTube. We could go, we can go get gifts of this. All right, probably unanswerable questions. Did they coat the ball in olive oil? What what was going on that made everybody forget how to catch and throw over the first six innings of this game? Good thing we didn't play the game in any rain where it might have impacted the ability of the fielders to grip the baseball. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the decision to delay the game. That had to be influenced by what happened with the, the World Series in 2008. And like the inning that they played in ankle-deep freezing water was cleaner than this. It was cleaner than most of this game. <laughs> oh, man. I love it. What happens if the the Cardinals have Adam Wainwright for the entire season? Mm-hmm. Slash what happens if you Darvish comes over a year earlier? Slash mm-hmm. what happens if the Rangers re-sign Cliff Lee? What happens if they don't make the comeback? I mean, obviously, they don't uh, compete in the the postseason. But, you know, what does a Braves 2011 world, uh, you know playoff run look like? I mean... Why are you pretending to ask about the Braves when we all know you're asking about the Phillies? Uh, what are you doing? Yeah. This is a safe space. Be yourself. What happens if Chase Utley, the, the best percentage base stealer of all time, manages to get to second base uh, instead of Yadier Molina, throwing him out on a curveball? <laughs> I had a version of that as an unanswerable question. Would Bryce Harper be on the Phillies right now if not for the rally squirrel? So if the rally squirrel had not helped the Cardinals beat the Phillies, had not thwarted. Fascinating. The Phillies, and they had prevailed and gone on perhaps to win a title. And then who knows how the next few years look for them. Are we in a place right now where where Bryce Harper is not on the Phillies? Bobby had an even more convoluted version of this about Mike Trout. Would he be on the Phillies right now? But then we asked him to explain it, and he he couldn't. (laughs) It was built on the theory that Albert Pujols would have re-signed with the Cardinals, which was you guys debunked that, so my convoluted theory I still think was, we should throw that out as an unanswerable question, though, because we don't ultimately know. It's like the definition of unanswerable. You mm-hmm. know, did Albert Pujols know already definitively that he was leaving, or was it up in the air? And if it was up in the air, could the result of this game have changed his decision in some way? Worth asking. Yeah, those are fair questions to ask. I think we we sort of stepped on some of these in the the sliding doors yeah. uh, category. What about, what about this one? Even, okay, with the caveat that Feldman obviously did not have a great 10th inning. Would Feldman have been able to get Freeze out? Because Feldman, he came out. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with Scott Feldman. I'm not. I will not indulge in a 
Okay. Jake Arrieta, Pedro Strope discussion. I will not do it. I will not. He was pinch hit for Feldman, right, in the 11th. And the pinch hitting did not result in more offense, more scoring for the Rangers. So you look back in hindsight and say, all right, well, what if that hadn't happened? Would he have fared better in that at bat against Freeze, obviously? Impossible well, to say. To but... say he wouldn't have, right? Like, I mean, it's the absolute <laughs> literal worst case scenario happened. Well, so there you go. Maybe it's not unanswerable. Maybe it's definitive. Much like would a better defender than Cruz catch the triple? You know, maybe it doesn't count as unanswerable yeah. because it's so clearly <laughs> yes. All right, and that that brings us to who won the game? David Freeze. Come on. Yeah, let's not overcomplicate this. I mean. The Cardinals won because of David Freeze. You know, the the combination of the triple off Feliz to tie the game and force extras and then the game-winning home run, that is an unbelievable double dip mm. of, of postseason heroics. That's incredible. Again, he won the NLCS and World Series MVP. The jersey, the shredded jersey from the celebration, his teammates were so overjoyed, they ripped his jersey off of him. That's in Cooperstown. The bat's in Cooperstown. And that extra variable of him being a hometown hero, a hometown kid who grew up rooting for St. Louis sports teams, rooting for the cards, and then hitting the game-winning home run for his team in the World Series. That's incredible. And I loved his post-game interview, the way he leaned into how abysmal the the error was. He said, man, that was incredible. I'm just glad I had a chance after looking like an idiot on that (laughs) pop-up. I love it. Real Disney movie stuff. And man will never have to buy dinner in Missouri or Southern Illinois ever again. All right, so if you enjoyed this episode, uh, this is obviously on the MLB feed, but we have uh, counterparts for this episode uh, on the NFL feed with uh, Kevin and Robert Mays and uh, on the NBA feed with uh, with Bill Simmons, Chris Ryan, and Joe House. So uh, if you're into the, the concept of sports rewatchables, you can go find other examples of that there. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, our installment on the MLB channel. And Mal... It's good to talk to you as always. Good to talk to you as always. Rally squirrel for life. Oh, no. Okay. Well, enjoy the weekend's action and we'll see you for the regular MLB show on Tuesday. Until then, thanks for listening.